Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. My special guest artist for today is a sought-after saxophonist, woodwind doubler, and contractor from Pompton Plains, New Jersey. That was him playing the tenor sax solo behind me with vocalist Gary U.S. Bonds on the song Daddy's Come Home live at B.B. King's. In addition to being Gary's featured soloist, my guest has also performed on legendary stages and arenas with iconic music artists that include Lou Christie, Chubby Checker, Stephen Van Zandt, The Golden Boys, and Darlene Love, just to name a few. Besides being a musician and contractor, my guest retired in 2014 as a career fireman who served for 25 years and was one of the firefighters that responded to the 9-11 attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001. Over the years, I've had the great pleasure of sitting next to today's guest as we played in various horn sections and happy to call him my friend. This saxophonist, woodwind doubler, and contractor certainly got shops. Please welcome Kevin Pursuti. Good morning, Kevin. This is Scott from Got Chops. How are you? I'm well this morning. How are you, Scott? Thank you for having me here. Oh, my pleasure. I'm doing well also. For my listeners at home, on the phone is my special guest artist for today calling from North Jersey. This is Kevin Pursuti. He's an excellent saxophonist, a woodwind doubler, and a contractor. And in addition to that, we've been best of friends for many, many years, and we have worked on many different theater gigs, different types of gigs in the same saxophone or woodwind section on various genres of music. And he's just a great guy. And as a friend, I've always considered him um, to be the older brother that I've never had. So, I mean, he we talk a couple of times during the week. Uh, we have a lot of uh, same similarities. Uh, he's just a great guy to, to know and a pleasure to sit next to in the, in the section. So, Kevin, uh, thank you for your time. I'm looking so forward to introducing you to my audience. Thank you, and thank you so much for the kind words. It, it means a lot to me. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Kevin, as a saxophonist, woodwind doubler, and contractor, 
What does the music slang got chops mean to you? Well, let's let's take it from here. The term got chops to all musicians, they usually refer to a person that has chops, that has extreme dexterity, um, quick speed, speed on their instrument, dexterity on their instrument, great uh, skills in improvising on their instrument, and maybe great theory in their head that they can apply to the instrument. And when they play it, uh, sometimes it's scary to hear musicians, they have so much technique. And musicians refer to that as great chops. But I have a different theory on the word chops in music, because to me, a musician that has chops, he needs to cover all the aspects of the music business. There's so much more to it than just playing the instrument amazingly, because I have a lot of friends and I know a lot of musicians that are unbelievable with technique and have chops that are scary, but they don't have the rest of the business together. I mean, at this point, does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you know, from our conversations, we feel exactly the same way. Right. So let's just build on that a little bit. So for me to say that person's got chops or I have chops, number one, yes, you have to be a great musician. As far as playing your instrument, you must play your instrument great. But that's a small part of having chops. The next part is you have to have your instrument extremely well maintained. And you and I both, we have some of the greatest repairmen anywhere. We have guys like Wayne Tarnowski. We have guys like Bill Singer, Dave Sempieri. We have the best. It's important to have your instrument working all the time at 100%. And the next part we have in the business is to the way you present yourself. Appearance is a huge part on being hired. Let's face it, Scott, if we walked into a situation where nobody knew who we were, people judge you on how you present yourself how you walk in on the gig. Do you have confidence in your walk? Do you keep yourself neat, your appearance? Do you have a look? Um, so that's the next part of it. There's so many steps to having chops. I would probably say a very important part, how well do you handle business? Do you return your calls? Do you return your emails? Do you return your texts? There's so much involved, and I think a musician that covers all of those bases, then he truly has chops, and I'd say that guy's got chops. So my theory there. Kevin Pursuti is a high-profile player. I've done gigs for many years alongside him. You know, we're playing background to the artists on stage. But, um, like, I was a soloist with Aretha Franklin for a number of years on the East Coast. Uh, he is a soloist for a, a very well-known artist, among the others that he works with, and that's Gary U.S. Bonds. And we'll talk about Gary later on. One issue now in life is that Ever since um, video came out, music videos, and even YouTube, um, when you play a gig now, 
people don't always, when you're listening to music, people don't really listen to music anymore because as well as years ago when that's all you could do was listen, now you can watch it. And, and that's one of the main reasons that the whole appearance and carrying yourself, because they're not only listening to you, but they're watching you. And that, that added a whole new dimension to the business, if that makes sense to you. Oh, absolutely. And people can watch you all day long. Right. Whereas before, if you go back to the 1960s, I'll just take the genre of Motown. So Barry Gordy had this idea of after he had someone produce their art, his artists and the music, and he then sent them to these finishing schools, like a, um, a school where you learn, like you said before, how to walk, how to talk, mm-hmm. how to carry yourself. And you and I have both worked and still work for a number of different Motown acts that are continuing. And right before they get on stage, you could see uh, they are carrying on that tradition. But back then, you would only see them, let's say, when they were on the Ed Sullivan Show or live in your hometown. Now, you can see an artist on Instagram, on social media, and you can study what they're wearing. And if you don't like it, you're not going to follow them anymore. So it's yeah. much more important in today's society. Yes. And, and the funny part about that was years ago, before we had things like YouTube or social media, if you had a gig that you felt you weren't happy with, if you played a gig on a Saturday night or you played a show on a Saturday night and you went home after that show and you said, I really didn't do the best. I, I wasn't happy with my performance. And I believe that's happened to all of us. The funny part about it now is there's a new level of pressure because if you have a show that you're not pleased with your performance, well, somebody has already put it and posted it on YouTube. So it lives on forever. So you'll be reminded of that show. There's some YouTube videos of me from 2017 with Gary U.S. Bonds or other artists, and they live on forever. So the, the show or the gig doesn't end anymore the night when it, you hit your last beat of that show. It just lingers and it stays. So the new level of pressure, Scott, is that you really have to try to you know, hit it out of the park every time so that you're not reminded of a bad performance. And, uh, and that's just another pressure of the business. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. So for my listeners, tell everyone where you were born and where you grew up. Sure. I was born in Hudson County, New Jersey, uh, in a small town called West New York, West New York, New Jersey, west of New York City, right across from the city, which, uh, and I lived there for about 30 years. And you and your wife, Robin, currently live in Pompton Plains. That's up in North Jersey. Yes, we're in North Jersey now. We've been at this location for about uh, 15 years, close to 15 years. That's correct. So what was the pivotal moment in your life when you knew you were going to devote yourself to the study of woodwinds? Well, that's really a funny story because I reached the age of six and my father said to me, my parents approached me and they always wanted, you know, like parents, they want the best for their children. Uh, My father said, mom and dad said to me, would you like to play an instrument? And I said, sure. So my father said, well, here's, here's the story, Kevin. He said, your mom and dad work a lot and we're very busy people. So you're at that age now, you could either take music lessons or you, if you want to play Little League, like some of the other children on the block, 
He says, you could do one or the other, but we can't do both. So I said, well, what, how do I make that decision, dad? And he said, well, he said, if you take music lessons, that's something very special and you can do that. He said, but you could still play baseball. He says, out in the street with all your friends. Because, Scott, you know, growing up, that was the big part of growing up. You met with all your friends and you went out in the street. And when it was football season, you played football. When it was baseball, you played baseball. So I said, okay, Dad, I'd, I'd like to take music lessons. So he said, great. So I said, what am I going to play? And he said, well, you know, uh, I said, I want to play that thing with the slide. And I meant the <laughs> trombone at the time. And he says, well, we don't have a trombone. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I have a friend that has a clarinet, and he's going to let you use that. So my dad brings the clarinet home, and I put it together the best I knew how. We looked at a picture, because there wasn't YouTube at the time. We looked at a picture of a clarinet, maybe on a record album. And we put the clarinet together, and I played it for a week without a reed, thinking it was broke. <laughs> um very strange. So mom and dad at a local music store arranged for my first lesson. Now I was six years old and I walked into the uh, Rex Music Center in West New York. And the um, Lou Lucatelli was my first teacher. He's passed since then. He said to my mother, he's a little young at six to be learning music lessons. You know, he probably doesn't even read reading yet at that point or learning still how to read you know, in school. So he says, do you want to play? And I said, yes. So he said, okay, we'll see how he does. So he put a reed on and he showed me how to blow into the clarinet. He taught me how to breathe from my diaphragm, which now I understand that six, you don't know those things. And I took the clarinet home and somehow my fingers knew where to go. And I learned the whole song, Strangers in the Night, by ear. Wow, that's impressive. That's the music, of course, we were brought up with, you know, listening to uh, parents always had Frank Sinatra on and great songs like that. So I went back to the studio a week later and I said, I can play a song. And he just looked at me. He said, let me hear it. And I played the whole song and he had a tear in his eye. And he said to my mother, he says, your son is going to be a musician. So that's exactly, Scott, where it started. That's a pivotal point in your life that, you know, the light bulb went on and said, oh, wow, yeah, how did I find that? But I have ears, but yeah, I do want to do this, and I got encouragement, and the rest is history. Who were some of your music idols back then for clarinet or just musicians in general? Well, at that age of six, seven, between six and ten, um, you know, everything was related to clarinet and I didn't know anyone at the time. So of course my relatives, of course I would have to, as soon as I learned to play anything, I'd have to go down to my grandparents' house and show them what I learned. And they'd give me a dollar for playing the clarinet. So they would show me pictures on record albums at the time that they had of Benny Goodman. So I grew up listening to Benny Goodman and then somebody, uh, we found a record of Pete Fountain. Um, playing pop tunes, uh, things like that. And then, of course, my grandfather called me one day. You have to come down and see Lawrence Welk. And there's a clarinetist on Lawrence Welk. So, I mean, 
anybody who played clarinet, I took an interest in because that was the interest, you know, playing clarinet was my instrument. What point in your life did you develop a practice plan that was aligned to your goals? Well, okay, I practiced every day when I started music. My parents didn't force me, but they would say to me, you know, maybe, um, are you going to practice? I said, yes, I am. And they didn't force me to practice hours. At six years old, your attention span, you know, there's other things going on. Um, So I practiced every day, whether it was 15 minutes or 20 minutes or a half hour. And... Um, unfortunately about a year and a half after I started, my music teacher passed away and it was very traumatic for me. And my parents didn't say anything. They just let me chill for a while and and absorb it because I was very close with this music teacher. He was a wonderful person. And then I said to my mother and father, you know, I need to get another teacher. So my parents got another very good teacher. Uh, My second clarinet teacher was, his name was Lou. Louis Ween. He was a great clarinetist. Um, and he took me up through, you know, the time of uh, into high school at that point. So I always practiced. And when I got into high school, it really blossomed at that point. So speaking about practice, that was then, what about your practice regimen today? Um, it's It's a little bit strange now because there's a lot of work involved as far as playing gigs and being a woodwind doubler, as you know, um, let's face it, there's four different saxophones that we just run them quick, soprano, alto, tenor, barry. Uh, I have three different kinds of flutes. I have a piccolo, I have a regular flute, I have a, an alto flute. There's bass clarinets, there's clarinet, there's a clarinet, and I play double reeds also, oboe and English horn. So with that many instruments, as you would know, you can't practice everyone every day. Yes, your practicing comes nowadays when we're older uh, and more seasoned. Well, through the gigs we're playing, you're playing every night on the bandstand, or not as much since COVID, but you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. Um, funny thing was the year I was going in high school, I played three instruments. I played saxophone, clarinet, and flute. And I remember the year I graduated high school and I was getting ready to go into college, I was playing four to six hours a day um, before I walked into college that first day. I wanted to be ready for it. Um, I was very disciplined through high school. I had a great band director in high school, Dave Osnowitz, who I think uh, you know Dave because both of us uh, play. I hire him and we play shows together and he did a lot for me and uh, he pushed me and he pushed me and, and I was, he said, I was like a sponge, right? Anything he offered, I, I soaked in, you know, and put it to use. The difference now is I like to call woodwind doublers and you and I spoke about this the other day. I'm a sprinter, not a marathon runner. And what I mean about that is we train you and I and woodwind doublers, like you just mentioned a few minutes ago. We train to sound like the instrument we're playing at that time is our main instrument. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I say a sprinter, a sprinter can run extremely fast for a short distance, but he usually can't run a marathon. So if I have to sound like an oboe player um, to play an intro of a song, I can do that. Would I be able to play an entire, you know, symphonic show? 
Probably not because that's not what I've trained to do. And every musician is trained either classically or contemporary. And uh, so you have a main instrument. So like with myself, and you know this, uh, you know, I was a flute major at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and then years later, a saxophone major in classical music at Manhattan School of Music in New York. Yes. So if we had to do a concerto or sonata, um, like any other artist, you have to spend hours and hours and hours on that repertoire. But that comes from our background, and that background helps us with the technique of doing this on all our woodwinds in order to get the gig and do the gig justice. And sound like we play that, you know, that instrument. I did major in clarinet in college because you needed to have one major. So, I mean, I did the repertoire and everything, but all the while I did that, I was doubling. But that was my main instrument as my college. I was given a partial scholarship for the time I spent in college till I graduated for clarinet playing. Inform my listeners where that was and what your degree or degrees are in, in music. Sure. I went to uh, Jersey State, uh, um, Jersey City State College, which now is called New Jersey State University College in Jersey City. Uh, it was a, a pretty rough area, but they had a very, very good music program at the time. Um, I auditioned uh, coming out of high school, senior year down there on clarinet. I think I played clarinet concertino, which every clarinet has played that. Of course. <laughs> and I was given a scholarship um, for classical clarinet there. And they continued doing that for the full time I was in college. And uh, I graduated. My father wanted me to get a teaching degree, music teaching degree, because he said, if we're going to go to college and I'm going to be paying for you or helping you get through college, he said, when you graduate, I want you to come out with something that's going to be useful. Because I thought at the time I was going to get just a degree in performance. And he said, you don't need a degree in performance to play an instrument. So he said, if I'm sending you to college, you're going to come out with something. And I said, well, what do you want me to get? He said, I want you to get an education degree, a teaching degree. So I did the five years. I never wanted to teach, but I went through the program for the five years. And when I graduated, I came out with my uh, teaching degree certified in the state of New Jersey for music for grades K through 12. To tell my listeners more about you, uh, you have contracted and or performed with artists that include uh, Time Life Magazine's Malt Shop Memories, uh, TV specials and cruises, Lou Christie, Chubby Checker, Frankie Valley, Jay Black and the Americans, The Temptations, Four Tops. Uh, the list goes on and on. And you and I have worked uh, with a lot of the same artists at separate times or together. Yes, we have. Yes. What was that experience like for you? to share the stage with these iconic artists for the first time? And are you still performing with these artists as of today? Yes. Okay. So where it really started, um, I had graduated college and I was getting ready. My father at that point was getting ready to line up a job for me as a high school band director. And I, I did not want to teach. I knew it was the right thing getting, getting a degree, but I did not want to teach. So it was close to the time where I was going to have to get a teaching job. I was living at home with my parents just out of college and the phone rang one night and we were eating dinner and 
I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I hung the phone up and I saw my father looking at me and I said to my mother, who is Frankie Avalon, Fabian and Bobby Rydell? And she said, uh, oh, why? I said, because I'm going on the road with them. And that was like, right, I think it was actually my last year of college or just when I graduated. That was the start of those three. It was called the Golden Boys of Bandstand. And we toured 90 cities a summer in a tour bus. So, and that went on for several years. I, I was, I got quite an education with that. Funny part about it is I think it's 37, 38 years later, I'm still working with them. And when they come into the East Coast here or local, I still get the phone call. Um, thank God, I still get those calls to put a horn section together, which some of those shows you've been on. Unfortunately, Bobby Rydell passed away not too long ago, but uh, the Golden Boys are still out there doing what they do. So that was the start. Um, when I got on stage, the first concert was in Ontario Place, Canada. And I didn't even know who they were. They drove past me in a golf cart. We were bringing them out to the stage. I didn't even know, Scott, who I was going to be playing for <laughs> or right. who they were or the magnitude. I'm 20 and they're 40. Three really good-looking guys. They were very nice to us. And I remember walking out on the stage. Yeah, I mean, I started playing out at 16, playing local parties and stuff. But I remember walking out on the stage and – like my knees nearly buckled because there were so many people. It was an education that I was so fortunate to have that lifestyle and live that. Um, and then it just built from there. And I always carried myself in a way like we spoke about in the beginning about got chops covering all the bases. I made sure I looked right for those gigs that I was nice to everybody. I kept my nose clean. I wasn't a problem on the road. Um, those are the things that, that led up to still at this point contracting. The reason I get these calls still is because I've seen other people, uh, that were contractors and they go in and they're nasty with the people that are hiring them. Um, that shouldn't be, if somebody's going to hire you, you better do everything in your power to be nice to them and show that your appreciation for the gig. That's why I'm still doing this. Young listeners might not know what the term contractor is. Could you explain that and what your duties are as a contractor? Sure. What happens is a contractor is the person that gets contacted by the act or maybe the, the promoter of the show, and he'll say, um, I need a horn section, say, for... Uh, for the Golden Boys, when we were doing that, I need six horn players in the section for the Golden Boys, and they'll tell me I need two trumpets, I need one trombone, I need a tenor, an alto, and a barry player, that's three saxophones, with doubles. And when they say doubles, meaning flute and or clarinet or whatever's needed. So my when he tells me that, my duty at that point is to make the contact with the musicians that I use and you being one of them, always one of, one of the best and helped me so much. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Those are the guys I make those calls and I have a group of musicians that are very dependable, make great appearances, nice guys, no drama and unbelievable musicians. And I make that call and then 
them in those chairs. That's what contracting is all about. Talking specifically about the Golden Boys, and if I can just piggyback a little bit on that. So for people that don't know, uh, Golden Boys, uh, the word golden, uh, these are three gentlemen that were pop artists, they were in teen magazines, they were actors, they were just golden. Anything they did was phenomenal. Most of them were discovered, you know, sitting on their front porch, and an agent uh, drives by and goes, kid, come here, do you sing? No. Do you act? No. Uh, Do you do this? No, no. We're going to teach that to you. We're going to make you a star. And we've heard these types of sayings in the old-fashioned movies, but that's exactly what happened to them, and they made them stars in you know, more than one thing in the music entertainment field. Yes, teen idols at that time were huge, you know, having, and they couldn't get enough of them. And they found a good-looking guy, you know, and they said, or, or, or a very attractive woman, and, I mean, they put these people on the cover of teen magazines, and, and they, they made them learn a, a talent somehow, made them sing or put them in acting, and, it, and they didn't have enough of them. And, yes, and nowadays that's changed, but that's Teen Idol. And then, you know, from that point on uh, in contracting, I've just moved up the ladder as far as getting other acts and stuff like that. And the more you do... The more, the more people that you get called to play for and or to book musicians for, the more calls you get from others. Tell my listeners also about the other iconic artist that you were still working with. You're his soloist. This is um, singer, uh, entertainer Gary U.S. Bonds. He's been around for, you know, eons. And if you can explain to my audience who he is, uh, you're not only playing behind him, you're his soloist. And could you share with my listeners the difference between what it's like playing behind an artist like you and I do, but then being featured as a soloist? Okay, so Gary U.S. Bonds, I received a call that I was going to play a show for Gary U.S. Bonds. I didn't have knowledge, really, of who he was. So I looked him up, of course, the beauty of, you know, social media um, and everything else, um, that you can find who people are. And I looked up his material and I realized that the singer that he was, the great singer that he was, the voice was amazing. And I said, well, I have to learn his material. How am I going to go about doing this? So I saw that he was playing in a theater in Jersey and my wife, Robin and I went and we recorded the entire show. I went home and worked on that music for two months. And at the time, Gary was using one saxophone, and the saxophone for Gary is his solo feature. There's, you're featured on just about every song that Gary does. You're a soloist. You come up front to do your solos. And I learned almost note for note the solos that the saxophonist he was using at the time was playing. And when I walked in to do the show, they were surprised that I knew all the lines and they asked me, how did you learn this? And I said, I recorded you about two months ago at a concert and I went home and learned the parts. So it was at that point showing how it pays to do your homework. I was offered the position as soloist for Gary U.S. Bonds. Often Kevin will call me and say, Scott, I've got a gig here, a gig there, blah, blah, blah. And 
as I said before, we work side by side or I'm subbing for him or vice versa. Uh, occasionally, the artists that we work for, they go into the studio and they have, you know, a recording session in L.A. or New York. Um, and there is a big, fantastic solo on one or two of the songs. And it's something that they really enjoy but it's not transcribed because it's obviously not because it was recorded at that point and taken for what it is. But the artist falls in love with that solo and exactly what Kevin is talking about. He'll say to me, Scott, I learned this solo. Uh, would you mind learning the solo also? Because it behooves us when you get there, you do the gig and they come up to you later, you know, the, the manager, the agent, like, wow. Thank you. You nailed it. Um, wow. Thank you so much. It makes a big difference because the artist feels so comfortable doing that. Correct? That's absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that brings up another point. Um, there are certain signature solos um, in songs that are out, you know, that are very popular. Let's just grab a few like you'll take these alto solo by Phil Woods in Just the Way You Are or you'll take the tenor saxophone solo that they play in The Wanderer. Those are signature, iconic type solos. Whether it's a simple solo or it's difficult, people are used to hearing that solo that way. So the best thing as a freelance musician going into a situation is if that song is going to be played, is to know that solo either note for note or as close as possible because they're hiring you to hear that. They don't want to hear Kevin Prasuti or Scott Grimaldi's solo. They want to hear what the record sounded like or the recording back then. Very important. Very important. Kevin, do you remember how and when we met? I don't know if we met through a mutual friend or we met on the bandstand, I possibly think. Um, you know, growing and making our way through through the industry, I guess we, we met on a big band. Was, does that seem right to you? Yes, yes. Um, I can't remember the name of the band. I know it was in North Jersey. And we hit it off right away. We blended terrifically. And then we exchanged numbers. And then little by little, you know, I got the call from you. Hey, Scott, I met you on that big band gig. Um, do you primarily play alto or tenor or whatever? I think that gig I was playing tenor and we right. just like you, Oh, I'm, I'm a doubler. I play all of them. Uh, do you, do you know these again? Do you know these solos for, you know, this Billy Joel song or Clarence Clemens, uh, tenor sax solo. Right. And then the next thing is for you, the contractor, uh, as much as you heard me play and sit next to you, is apprehension. It's like, I've never booked this guy. I don't know. So you right. send me to a gig, you, you talk to the leader, and he's going to be fine. He knows the stuff. Then you check with the leader of the band, or he or she calls you, and then we talk. And once you get their confidence, then they're really happy, because they'll tell you, no, he played great, I don't like the way he looked. Or he looked great, I don't like the way he played. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's a lot of pressure on us, isn't it? And, and you get one turn at it. You really get one shot, you know, and, and that's the, the sad part about it. So you either do it or you don't. Absolutely. That's, a, that's an issue. Yeah, and it's, it's great. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's where we are at this point. So let's tie in the gigs that you and I have played for like the last thousand years or so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you mention a few of them? 
Well, we've done, uh, we've worked with, of course, the Golden Boys, which starts at the beginning. Um, we've worked our way up. We've been with Lou Christie, all the artists from that genre. We've done the Four Tops. We've done the Temptations. Um, wow. Can you add to some of them? I can. Um, you know, you and I have um, really nice gigs that we work on. And the one that comes to mind, because it wasn't that long ago, was this celebration that's done like twice a year, usually one in the summer, one in the um winter and it's the east coast music hall of fame where they're honoring you know classic artists like you just mentioned and others that are in different genres we get the chance to play these artists on stage on one of their hit songs maybe play or one or two of their, their numbers with you yep. um it, that comes to mind um there's a new artist that you and i've been working with for the last couple of years chris ruggiero correct and he's up and coming very talented yeah and, and we're blessed to have that opportunity, you know, to get on the ground floor with somebody and, and become part of that. Yes. Absolutely. And he, he does like us. He, he loves what we do when we play. Tell my audience uh, about the affiliation you have with various music manufacturers that include Resotech saxophone boosters, AMT microphones, and Reed Geek products. Okay, so basically some, of the, some are endorsements and some are... Uh, products that I'm affiliated with. And for those that don't know what an endorsement is, I have the endorsement for uh, Applied Microphone Technology, AMT. And what happens is they look for an artist that's out playing, uh, that's going to get exposure, and they give you one of their products to try to use, uh, use it, uh, first of all, to try it to see if you like it. You know, you usually go to their location and, and they prep you to use this um, product. So you bring this out and you're seen playing it in public. And that makes people say, wow, I like the way that sounds. And that helps the product be sold. Um, so I did that with AMT microphone uh, a while back and it's a great product. You know, I still use it um, with other stuff also that I'm also playing on. Um, I have an affiliation with Resotech Boosters, and for woodwind players would know the boosters are the uh, the disc on the backside of the pads in your saxophones. Um, they like to find artists that are using their product because it helps them sell the product. And then I did a little thing for Reed Geek, which is a tool for fixing, uh, adjusting saxophone reeds and uh, I did a thing for them and I have a thing on their website shows a picture of me with a saying, you know, with what, what I feel about the product. So yeah, it's nice to get things like that. Oh, absolutely. And you and I shared that uh, common thing also. Years ago, I was an artist endorser for the L.A. Sax Company. They were the ones that started to colorize the uh, brass and woodwind instruments. And, you know, we, we did some promotional CDs and posters and I, uh, different, uh, different music conferences, you know, as an artist and demonstrating the horns. And it is because it gets you out there and it gets people to buy the product, especially if they hear a recording like, wow. And then they'll contact you and go, are you really playing that? Absolutely. Wow. That, did you ever play a, a saxophone out like, a, did you have a colored different color saxophone? Yeah, you know what? Uh, when we get together in the near future, I'm going to bring some of my L.A. saxophones. I have a multicolored uh, soprano. <laughs> it looks like it I'd was, love to see that. 
that. It looks like it was dumped in lava. I have a Royal Magenta Alto. I have a Copper Neck and Copper Bow. Uh, they also sent me years ago, they were endorsing a, a straight tenor and a straight alto. Wow, I never even heard of that. Yeah, so there's a CD <laughs> with myself and Joe Lovano. You know who he is. Right, of um, He's re recorded a piece for them on the straight tenor they sent me a straight tenor and straight alto um the straight tenor was just too damn long <laughs> I could, you know i'm only five foot five i'm not you know six foot whatever like you <laughs> but the alto was great I, I loved it let's go back to one of the endorsements that you have and as musicians always are will share things like, oh, have you heard about this clarinet barrel? Have you heard about mm -hmm. this mouthpiece? So Kevin turned me on to this uh, item that I use on my saxophones on tenor and alto. It's called a Klangbogen. Could you explain that to the audience? On a saxophone, uh, right at the neck, the Klangbogen connects to the instrument. Um, some say it makes a difference. Some say it doesn't. It's uh, made out of uh, different types of metals. They have polished brass. They have regular brass. They have copper. I think they even have stainless. The idea of it attaching it to the neck of the horn, it's supposed to enhance the sound of the instrument. Uh, if, if I'm right, Scott, I believe it, it enhances. The, it's said to enhance the sound by um, the, was it molecular structure? changes the molecular structure of the metal. Exactly. And where you attach the neck, you know, so it frees up that, you know, little uh, constricted area there. Right. Now, you know, there are guys who don't believe in stuff like that. Um, and there are guys that do. Uh, I never discount. I never say it does or it doesn't. All I know is when I put something on like that, if it makes me feel good, it works. Right. Right. Um, I have days when I put it on and it's just amazing. It seems like my instrument lights up. I have other days I put it on and say, I don't want that today. So my belief is when you endorse a product, um, you're not going to make everybody love it. It's how you feel and it's what it does for you and how it makes you feel. I don't force anything on anybody. Same thing with mouthpieces. This is what I play and this is what I like and it feels great. Um, people come to me at times for, you know, an issue with a mouthpiece or something, or, gee, I don't know what I'm playing. What do you play? And I say to them, it, it doesn't matter what I play. It's what makes you feel good. Absolutely. And you and I talk about this all the time because the makeup of a person, their oral cavity, their, their teeth, their tongue yep. structure, you know, so what worked for David Sanborn might not work for another person. Right. And let's face it, no matter what you play on, you're going to have good days and bad days. Exactly. Take an instrument like the flute. There is no mouthpiece on it. It's a lip plate. Um, some days you pick your flute up and it immediately it speaks. It, it rings. It's beautiful. Other days it's just, it's all your physical making, your, your phys how you physically feel that day and the makeup of your body that particular day. And the weather conditions. Right. And because you and I do a lot of outdoor uh, amphitheater gigs, yeah. and it could be 100 degrees, <laughs> and then we're on stage with the, be you know, glaring lights. It's like, oh, my God. And that makes the pads expand, but you, you have to deal with it. Right, right. And that wreaks havoc on the instruments, too. Playing, playing gigs down by the waterside, you'll feel the moisture, the humidity on the instrument, the reed. It, it's a lot. And those are the things you have to 
put aside in your mind and you have to muscle through it because you're being paid to play. Kevin, besides being a really special friend and a great musician, he's also a former career fireman. Uh, you know, that's another passion of his, and he retired not too long ago. Uh, besides that, he was one of the people, one of the fire companies that he was associated with that was called to the scene of 9-11 in New York. So he witnessed some, um, you know, very tough things so, Kevin, could you talk about um, your career as, you know, your dual career as a fireman, which you're now, you know, retired from, and then 9-11 without getting you upset? Mm-hmm. No problem. So I um, got on the fire department. I took a test. I came from a whole family of firefighters. Uh, my father worked his rank up to the rank of chief of the West New York Fire Department, then was actually chief of five towns when they regionalized services. My mother's brother was chief. My uncle was chief in the fire department also. Uh, It was a calling. Um, It was something I decided to do in about 1988. I took the test. I just had a calling to do that. Uh, never with the thought of not playing music. I just did not want to be a music teacher. I wanted a little more security in life, but I wanted to play music. I took the test in 1988. I was sworn in on the West New York Fire Department in 1990. I put in uh, 25 years on the department, which is what's required to get your portion of your pension and your benefits. Um, It was a great job. It is still a great job. I miss it. Um, The adrenaline on the job was more adrenaline than I've gotten anywhere in life. And the fact being able to help people meant a lot to me. Um, So I went through the career and unfortunately at You know, when 9-11 came about, uh, we were called in that day. I was just returning home from my normal tour of duty. We were called to report to the fire station. We went back to our fire quarters. And at some point uh, in the next day or two, we were, you know, dispatched over to aid in the, uh, at that point, I'd call it more of a, um, it wasn't a rescue attempt at that point. It was just salvage and, uh, just looking, looking for bodies, basically. And, and that's what we did. You know, uh, many firefighters all did the same thing. And it was, it was a horrible thing that the, that the country went through at the time. But, you know, we got through it. We got through it and uh, we moved along. And I continued with my career. I retired, um, I retired in 2014. And, you know, after 9-11, I kind of thought, like, I've seen a lot. And believe it or not, we were one of the first crews uh, on the scene for the plane crash on the Hudson, (laughs) which two major life events I got to see and survived them. And very lucky, very fortunate. And that was basically the career that I put in uh, Scott on the FD. I remember like everyone else, you know, if you're asked, where were you you know, the day of 9-11 in the morning. And I remember that for a number of different reasons, but I got a text from you. I don't know if you remember that because, I mean, you were so so wrapped up and, oh my God, I got the call, we got to go. You know, your adrenaline is higher than normal. 
And you said, I just got the call with my fire company that we have to go to the scene of 9-11. And my heart sunk. Uh, oh, my God. I, I can't imagine what you're doing. And then yeah. I got the call because I was also an adjunct professor at Manhattan College in New York uh, that all the colleges, everything was shut down. So don't even come in. So the next day I reached out to you and we spoke on the phone. And... um the things that you told me that were part of yep. your duty. I don't know how, mm -hmm. how you did what you did. And I started weeping, you know, and I mm -hmm. held it back from, you know, you mm -hmm. know, having you hear that, but, uh, wow. I mean, um, Kevin is the sort of person he would give you the shirt on his back, anything. Thank you. And he is a, this is a calling, as he said, he's a born fireman. You know, this is a guy that if he wasn't on duty and he, driving down the street and he sees something on fire, he's stopping and he's going in. This is a, a very special person. And, um, I appreciate that. You know, we, we thank you for all your, your years of service. I mean, that's, and, and could you tell uh, the audience, I, I know as a uh, fireman, you get checked out every year, you know, a couple of times a year to make sure you're okay. Yes. We, uh, you know, even if, Firefighters that didn't respond to 9/11, they offer um, uh, they offer a program for firefighters as well as first responders, meaning firefighters, police officers, and um, EMS workers. Uh, they offer a course. Uh, I'm sorry. They offer a program called a gift from Captain Busio, who was a fire captain, um, and they named this program after him. And we're giving we're given a head to toe physical and you go for that once a year and they do all the, the blood work on you. They run your numbers. It's a great program. And any firefighter, police officer or EMS worker uh, is entitled to go to these programs. Unfortunately, not, not everyone takes advantage of them, but we go every year. Uh, I'm entitled to take my wife and we both go and we get checked out thoroughly because firefighters do, have other things going on in their system from the maybe 25 years of inhaling, you know, toxic fumes and chemicals that you're exposed to, but knock wood, thank God at this point, I'm, I'm very healthy. And, uh, I try to keep a good attitude about it. The, the funny part, Scott, about the job, just to go back a little bit was all the years I was on the fire department for the 25 years, I used every bit of my vacation time, uh, or time off or mutual swaps where you could change out a shift with another firefighter. Um, I used all of that time to maintain my music career. So I was working two full-time careers. I mean, I can remember putting in a 24 hour shift in the firehouse, coming home eight o'clock in the morning and driving to Lancaster to do two shows, maybe at the American music theater, like an 18 hour day. But I didn't skip a beat with the fire department. That job allowed me the opportunity to maintain my music career. Of course, now, uh, when I retired in 2014, this has become very full-time playing, and I'm blessed to have had these two careers and still have this one. Well, thank you for talking about all that. I, it's mm -hmm. got to be very emotional, and I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I can attest to what uh, Kevin's talking about as far as you know, working all day and then coming home and practicing. And the amazing thing is, even to this day, we'll do a gig and, you know, he'll look at me and go, ugh, 
I don't like the way I sound today. <laughs> oh, you sound great. What are you talking about? I don't like it. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know about this. And then he'll text me after the gig. He says, uh, guess what I'm doing now? Uh, I'm practicing on an, uh, this other mouthpiece. So there's, I don't like what I did. Oh, my God. And we're trying to, you know, talking each other down off the tree. And well, yeah. That, yeah, that's the dedication. And uh, right. that's, that's Kevin Pursuti. And, and that's Scott Grimaldi. We never stop trying to, you know, get better. And, and, and the funny thing is, uh, I will come home after a gig and say, gee, I just didn't like the way my saxophone sounded tonight or just something didn't feel right. And I'll come home at 11, 12 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning and I'll start playing just to make sure that it wasn't the instrument or maybe it was just me or maybe it was just the sound in that particular room or the sound equipment that I was required to play through because I know I have to play again the next day in a different environment. So we're always checking to make sure. And practice, as we spoke a little earlier, has changed because it's not really like where you're sitting down shedding and learning something new. Practice now is just a constant preparation for the next day. Wouldn't you feel that, Scott? Yes, preparation and maintenance and yeah, and every gig has its own length of, oh, I have to prepare for this concerto. Oh, I have to prepare for this jazz uh, solo or this jazz gig. Or uh, there's no preparation here. I'm going and I'm going to be sight reading all night. But you have to prepare everything before that. So speaking about music, please pick two different musical selections that you've recorded that you feel best represents what you do as a saxophonist that I can filter into this interview as you speak about them now. Okay, well, I had to do a uh, recording of uh, a song by the Coasters called Yakety Yak, or it was Charlie Brown, I think was, was basically the name of the tune, Charlie Brown, and it had that, that Boots Randolph-style saxophone solo in it. And I was asked to duplicate the solo. At first, the young artist that required me to do it said, just, you know, there's a solo, play a solo in this song. And I actually spoke to the young artist and said, the only solo that can be played in that song is the original solo, because anything other than that, they're just going to think you can't play. And and that was kind of funny to me. And the young artist was actually um, Eden Everly, the son of Don Everly, and uh, Frankie Avalon Jr., who is my age. She's in his 60s at this point now. Don't talk back. And do you have a second one you could talk about now as I play it? Sure. That was the one with the uh, Killer Joe band. On that particular solo, that was for a television show, like a late night television show. And they were the featured band that night. And I was filling in for their saxophonist, who was also a marvelous player. And that particular song, I had to learn the lines of the song, but I was free to play the solo that I wanted to do. 
And that particular solo was what I felt fit at that time. But most of the time when you're filling in for musicians, you're expected or recording for them to play it as close to the way they did, if not exactly. Since that was a TV show, people are not only listening to you, they're they're watching you. Yeah. And I could see, you know, because I've watched that video, you could see that Kevin is a very confident player. He looks great on stage. He's got, got a lot of class in his clothes. And, uh, yeah, that makes all the difference. I, I have a couple of different catchphrases, and one of them is people listen with their eyes. Oof. And once you satisfy what they're seeing, they will open their ears and then they're sold on you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they'll judge you before you put the horn to your face a lot of times just on your appearance. I mean, as we get older, it gets tougher. I mean, you know, there aren't many 60, 60-something-year-old 60 men walking around with, with blonde hair. Trust me, hair dye, Botox, whatever it takes to get the gig. I'm sorry, but it, it means a lot now. It means a lot. Absolutely. And and you're doing what you need to do to maintain. Correct. And you're satisfying the people you're working with, both visually and musically. And that's why you're working a lot. So bravo to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You and I both know that in music, especially in music, because of the stress level and the preparation that you just talked about and the maintaining of your chops. Um, there's a lot of humor you know, that we deal with, you know, the, the big thing about musicians is what we call the hang, you know, right. uh, when we find out so-and-so's on the gig, or I find out Kevin and I are going to be on the gig, it's like, we're going to be laughing, we're going to be having a great time, and then when the yep. downbeat comes, we're doing our business, we don't, we're right. never unprofessional, but right. that is great, because the humor, you know, swapping stories back and forth, and jokes, uh, really does break up the tension, and uh, oh, this, yeah. Yeah. so tell my audience if you can uh, share at least like one funny story or if you have an interesting story. Traveling, you know, traveling with, with, with the acts, with the stars in the buses, the things that happen. We were playing in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I think it was at a civic center and our tour bus pulled up and we were with at the time, I think it was Frankie Avalon, Fabian, and I, maybe Chubby Checker was filling in for Bobby. Uh, no, Chubby Checker was filling in, I think, for Frankie Avalon. So it was Bobby Rydell, Chubby Checker, and Fabian. And the sign outside the concert venue said, Golden Boys. It said, Motley Crue, <laughs> Brian Adams, oh, boy. and John Cafferty. Well, all these acts were staying at the venue and playing the venue. We were playing the same venue. So our tour bus pulls up, and there's mobs, mobs of 
young girls and, and groupies waiting, I guess, anybody that showed up because in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where we were, was this huge civic center. There was an oatmeal factory, a slaughterhouse, and a bar, and that was it. <laughs> and our bus pulled up, and all these people rushed the bus. Girls were rushing the bus. We were in our 20s. And the trumpet player looked over at me, and the girls said, are you guys with the crew, meaning Motley Crew? <laughs> so him and I just looked at each other, and we said, yes, we are. <laughs> So that was really a funny story. And we got tickets to see Motley Crue that night, and they were attempting to set the world record for indoor volume. Oh. <laughs> so everybody was given earplugs, and they were doing pyrotechnics on the side of the stage. They were, like, spraying the people down with hoses to keep them cool. Wow. Crazy. So, yeah, it was a lot of stories from the road. It was great. I mentioned that I have uh, a couple different catchphrases. Do you have a catchphrase or, or one or more? I live by the fact I've never found something I don't like in any kind of musician. I look for the one thing I like about them. And to me, if more, more musicians did that, it would, it would be a much better. You gain so much more than picking. Let's face it, we're always going to be very picky about the instrument we play. And when we go to see a saxophonist or a doubler, we compare, let, people say no, but we know it's, it's human nature. You're going to compare yourself to that person. And, you know, there's always that little bit of, I hate to say jealousy, but we all like, oh, he doesn't play that great. You know, and instead of looking for things like that, look for the one thing in that musician that he does that you don't, or the one thing that you like about him. And believe it or not, if you do that enough, you start taking that one thing from each musician and you add that to your repertoire, your toolbox. And that's worked for me. So, Kevin, do you have any upcoming live performances or projects that you'd like to announce? Aside from the multi-act shows, like I'm going to be at the Proctor's Theater on Saturday, April 9th, doing a... Uh, a multi-act show as, as one of the sections. And I contracted a couple of musicians for that in the section. Um, I have the Kirby center for performing arts coming up in May. And I think you and I both were looking at that June 1st date for Chris Ruggiero. Right. PA. We have that, but then my, my regular gig uh, that I do with the soloist for Gary U.S. Bonds, June 9th, we're going to be at the headliner in Neptune. Uh, with Gary U.S. Bonds, and you and I both are going to be June 10th, it looks like, at the Kimmel Center in Philly. That's a great gig. I love doing that gig. Oh, that Kimmel Center, I guess for those that don't know the theater, that's like equivalent to the Lincoln Center in New York. So, and it's a, it's a great theater, and uh, what we're doing actually is a tribute to uh, we lost Jerry Blavitt, who was a famous Philadelphia DJ and personality. Uh, they're doing a tribute to him on that. So we'll be on that. I have the Iridium Jazz Club with Gary U.S. Bonds coming up August 11th. And I'm very excited about July 27th through August 3rd. I'm going to be doing the Happy Together Tour. I'm filling in for the saxophonist for the Classics Four. And, you know, for those of you who don't know the Classics Four, they wrote the tunes Stormy, Traces of Love, and Spooky. Um... The lead singer of that, Tom Garrett, really nice person, he just contacted me and asked me to fill in.
Ireland for his saxophone player, who's a marvelous player. So I'm excited about that. We'll be going, starting down at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank to Atlantic City, and then from there up through Utica and Albany. So if anybody sees the Happy Together tour at that time, please feel free to come up and say hello. It'd be great. I want to thank you so much for uh, giving me this time and sharing your experiences and your talent and who you are with my listeners. And I have to say, you certainly got chops. Thank you so much. This opportunity meant so much for me to do this, and I can't thank you enough. And please, to anybody listening, feel free to contact me, and I'd love to talk to you. Have a great day, and I'll see you in the next gig. You too. We'll be working together shortly. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. You can follow my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Anchor.fm, and stay connected between episodes on Instagram at GotChopsPodcast. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops.